Welcome to Fifth Wall's Fly on the Wall podcast, where we explore the shifts occurring in real estate, technology, and society that are driving our cities towards a more equitable, green, and tech-enabled future. I'm your host, Brendan Wallace. In today's episode of Fly on the Wall, I am joined by Hiten Santani, Associate Publisher and Editorial Director of The Real Deal. We discuss the surprising factors that change the real estate industry's posture towards prop tech and how the past might impact the future of climate tech for the built environment. Enjoy the conversation. So, Hiten, thank you so much for joining. Where are you coming in from? I'm in Los Angeles. I'm back in sunny LA. So maybe can you start by just telling kind of everyone your career arc, like how you came to cover the real estate industry as a journalist? Sure. Yeah. So I started off, I grew up in a place which didn't really have a press, right? I grew up in a monarchy. I grew up in Dubai. The UAE is a monarchy. There is a press, but it's really just a, it's a propaganda vehicle, really. So I didn't really have sort of a thriving free press around. But I was keenly aware that that is something that I was interested in. That is something maybe I missed more or maybe I aspired to do more of because we didn't have it. And then I went to college for business and cognitive science at Toronto. And I kind of was dabbling in social psychology research while I was there. So this is a very sort of sideways path into journalism. I was I worked in advertising briefly in Toronto. I loved the sort of the creative aspect of advertising. I did not enjoy the final sort of the end game of advertising, which is you're not really doing too much of consequence in the end, right? If you do your job really well, you've moved a unit or you've like raised sales by 6%. So I didn't, I didn't find that very compelling. And then my move into journalism was serendipitous completely. I came to New York for Thanksgiving and I was going to Columbia. I was thinking about going to grad school. So I went to Columbia just to see if I could, you know, meet some professors and stuff. The day that I went, I was thinking about either doing an MBA or going to J school, to journalism school. The day that I went to Columbia, the business school was closed for some event and the journalism school was open and the director of admissions was sitting in his office by himself. So I just kind of walked in and I had a chat and uh, that's how it happened. So I got in, I had 10 days to finish the application, which I did. I got in, had an incredible year and learned it from, from zero. I didn't know any sort of any of the building blocks of journalism. I had never written in my school paper or any of that stuff. Uh, I, I but finishing, I, a, finishing a journalism application under a deadline it was kind of a, a poetic reality you're forced to basically tell your own story under a deadline absolutely so i had 10 days to kind of corral everything together and come up with a compelling case and i thought you know you have a lot of journalists but maybe this uh, the ability to take a cognitive science degree, which is really about mental models, how people think, the ability to combine that with some knowledge of business might be compelling. So I got lucky there. I got lucky again. I got an internship covering public schools for the New York Times. So very, very far cry from what I do now. And then I uh, got to the real deal maybe a year after graduating. 
and I've been here ever since. And uh, yeah, I think what's happened, what I got very lucky with, and there's a lot of series of good fortune in my, in my career, but real estate pound for pound for me, and probably for you, because you're in the business, but is the most exciting, the most consequential industry that one could hope to cover, right? There might be times when you feel like Wall Street is the thing to cover, or there might be times that you want to get into some other aspect, sports, for example, but in a consistent daily and sort of overall lifespan view, there is nothing more interesting than real estate, right? We've talked about this. It's the largest industry in the US. It is the path for wealth creation for nine out of 10 Americans. There's so many layers to it, right? You can cover crime, celebrity, capital markets, drama, development. It's uh, pretty mind boggling. Whatever you want to cover, you can cover it through the lens of real estate. So that's where I'm at. It's interesting to think about real estate as um, just such a diverse industry to cover, right? Because I've seen obviously with the real deal covers and you in particular cover, but you're touching on everything from what we talk a lot about technology and the collisions there, sustainability, but then also individual development, drama, you know, in, inside companies, the, the implications for affordable housing and demographic change as affected by real estate. And I guess one of the questions I have is from the vantage point you're in, real estate, I imagine, and the real deal probably historically covered real estate and real mm -hmm. estate capital markets and real estate operations and real estate services. But increasingly, you've probably felt this encroaching presence of technology as kind of a thematic trend. And, and, and pop tech. And I'm curious from your position, like what did it feel like to first have that creep in to, you know, traditional real estate journalism? Yeah, well, you know, we had, uh, I, I remember a time VTS, which is one of your portfolio companies, Nick Romito is the founder and CEO. I think early 2013, he walks into our office. You know, you've met Nick. He's got this like hopeful swagger about him. He walks into the office. We were in the middle of a renovation. So him and I are sitting on these boxes in a spare room. And he's like, this is my background. I came from uh, Murray Hill Properties. Now I was a broker, et cetera. And I've got this tech thing going on. And at the time, VTS was really a video tour company, right? That, that's pretty much all they did is they shot these beautiful videos for landlords to market their space. So I would say about 2013, and that's shortly after I started at The Real Deal, just a few months after, is when we started hearing about tech coming in. It wasn't prop tech, that word I don't believe existed at the time, but that's when it started really creeping in. So 2013, you had a bunch of promising startups. CompStack is another one. Compass, then Urban Compass was sort of founded around then as well. Come in and really the playbook was like, hey, this is working in another industry. We know the pain points of this industry why don't we just apply it? There wasn't too much in terms of original innovation being done. It was more context switching, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I yep. see this working in transportation. I see this working in finance. Real estate is a big market. Might as well do it this way. And, and you know, a lot of companies are still just doing that, right? It's the Uber 4X, whatever, right? It's the thing for real estate. So you see that happening. Then there was a period, I, I want to say, right about when Fifth Wall started, or maybe just before that, when there were a lot of imitators in the field, right? PropTech, by then, maybe the name had come out, had started getting money and attention. So suddenly you saw this explosion of startups. A lot of them bullshit, right? Coming in, trying to do crowdfunding, trying to do debt underwriting, trying to do a lot of stuff. Most of those startups aren't around anymore. And then fast forward to today, 2020, I think we saw 7 billion plus in debt and equity deals in prop tech. We saw what 50 odd deals where the check size was over $20 million, which is significant. And I think it's only growing from there. So, so imagine the, the bulk of your readership is real estate based. Like they are, they are tuning into the real deal. They're reading the real deal to gather real estate news. But it, I imagine that you know you're also serving your your customers, your readers, and 
do you find that there's a, a, a greater demand to just like know what's happening in the industry? Because so much about, for example, fifth wall positioning itself is like we're saying, hey, we're a conduit between the innovation economy, mm. what's happening in the ecosystem of venture and startups and all of that. And we're connecting you, real estate company, to that, we're translating that. Do you find that you kind of have that role as translator a bit and kind of translating what this tech means into real estate digestible language? <laughs> That is a very good question. I can think back to the initial article we did, which was like real estate's hot new entrepreneurs and the language, the actual verbs and sentences that we had to use in that. I would be embarrassed to read that now. But right. yes, to your point, it served a valuable, yeah, translation interpretation message. Hey, this is what this company is doing. Now we can use words like big data or data science or stackable interactive plans and stuff at that time because they didn't really... There was no mechanism for our readers to understand those things. So it would be like, think of X and then think of real estate. It was very, very uh, infantile in a way, right? The language we had to use. Now there's a level of literacy when it comes to tech and real estate that I think even our older readers, even a lot of our older readers who tend to be brokers, developers, investors, even hedge fund managers, they kind of get it now. So the, the baseline of starting the conversation is a lot higher now, which means you and I can have a chat, we can get technical, we can get wonky, and I'm not too worried about alienating too many people, right? There is enough of a subset of readers now who are interested in this coverage, who know a lot about this coverage, and want to be told real stuff. They don't want to be, you know, just explain things to. They, they want you to take them to the next frontier of tech. So we're trying to do that. We're very lucky we have a very talented reporter who's sort of heading that up, E.B. Solomon, who you know, she has a newsletter, in the newsletter, you know, she breaks down the biggest deals, the biggest thing, but also increasingly as she's gotten sort of more fluent in the beat, she's adding a layer of context and that is making a big difference, right? That didn't exist for a long time. I think we're at the forefront of that when it comes to real estate media. And what I'm always curious to ask people's perspective on this one question that we always, I think, don't have a necessarily great answer for, which is that Sometime, right, since your first conversation with VTS to today, right, when there's the, the open doors, the, the hippos, the state's titles, the compasses of the world that have now created, you know, tens of billions of dollars of enterprise value. Sometime in that intervening four years, this light bulb moment happened for the real estate industry, where there was, I describe it as like an age of enlightenment, where this industry that had sat out two decades worth of technological innovation kind of woke up and was like, oh, we need to start basically catching up. And there was this kind of slingshot effect. What precipitated that? Like if you were kind of a sociologist analyzing that, <laughs> what was it around 2016, 2017, 2018 that made the real estate industry recognize for the first time in the history of the industry that tech was not just important, it was existential and they had to pay attention? Well, I think there are probably two elements to that, right? One is cultural, which we can get into, but maybe the first is use cases, right? When technology is actually playing a part in boosting your NOI, when technology is actually playing a part in making your tenants happier, and you're seeing that in terms of when you go to lease renewals, when you are maybe marketing a property, when you can see that in action. So someone took a leap of faith on VTS or Comstack or whatever, someone took a leap of faith early, but then you can see a couple of companies in the space. You can see the value being created. So that's one, right? You've got to see it to believe it in a way, right? Proof that, points. Yeah, proof points, right. You, you have to see that in action. You, you don't want to necessarily, if you're a laggard, if you're not a genuine innovator, that's fine. In real estate, the beauty is 
you can be a laggard for a long time before it starts hurting you. There is a long, uh, there is a long forgiveness period built into real estate. I don't think, uh, Brendan, it's like Wall Street. You know, if you didn't get into high frequency trading, how can you compete against Citadel? You're done, right? Because real estate is local, because your assets are grounded in a location, you can get away with being a dodo for a long, long time, right? It's just right. the way it is. So there was this period built in where maybe maybe a lot of developers who might now be your LPs and understand this, but there was a period where they just sat and they watched and they saw a lot of startups come in, talk a big game. A lot of them fell away, but then the few that lasted and showed value, I think that opened them up. So that's one thing. The other aspect of that would be cultural, right? So I think we talked about this before. You know, you're, I don't know how old you are exactly, but you're a youngish man. You probably saw, you know, when you were thinking of like, who is my sort of North Star in the real estate industry? You might think of a Jonathan Gray, right? From Blackstone. You might think of someone of that, that category. I would call those the suits, right? That's the people who are like fully versed in the capital markets, understand that real estate in many in many sort of ways is just structured finance. It's nothing different, right? Mark Holliday, John Gray, those are some of the people that you might have looked up to when you started your career. A prior generation looked up to, let's call them the cowboys, the Harry Macklows, the Harry Helmsleys, you know, the, the buccaneers who looked at the skyline like a game of dice, right? So there was a shift that happened between the cowboys and the suits, right? And you're, you're part of that. The next shift, which is happening now, which is why it's such an interesting time, is probably from the suits to the technologists. People are looking at investors, tech investors, tech creators, startups, founders. This, this sort of lexicon didn't even exist in real estate before. So with that shift comes maybe a more, uh, maybe more openness to investing in technology, implementing technology. So I think it's twofold. It's interesting uh, that perspective of kind of a, the cowboys to the suit to the technologists, because, you know, in other industries, it, it is happening. I mean, the most powerful man and the most powerful person rather in the automotive industry is Elon Musk, mm -hmm. right? Who is definitionally not from the automotive, mm -hmm. automobile industry. He is a, Can you imagine Henry Ford sitting down with, uh, I don't know, Cronkite or whoever the person was of that generation, smoking weed and making memes and still being phenomenally successful? It doesn't, it doesn't exactly. happen, right? So, yeah. So as you're seeing this, this transition happen, do you think that the next great leaders, the, the kind of the, the figureheads of the real estate industry, do you think that they are today perhaps characterized as technology companies, meaning a company like OpenBuild, for example? Mm. Do you think whoever leads that, the man or woman that leads that in five years from now, do you think that is one of the most important influential real estate companies and is characterized as a real estate company? One of the reasons I asked the question is that a lot of the real estate companies today that are some of the most iconic real estate companies and the largest real estate mm -hmm. companies that trade at the highest premiums to NAV mm -hmm. are companies like in cold storage and companies that are in logistics and companies that are in data centers, mm -hmm. which historically were almost thought of as operating companies or in the case of data centers, technology companies. Yeah. So there's been this kind of transition from the historic tried and true sectors, the office retail sectors to these new kind of technology-like operationally intensive higher leverage businesses that really seem to be commanding a lot of the attention in the real estate industry. You think the same thing is afoot with respect to technology? Yes, but I, I think that the power of incumbency in real estate is so strong. You have so much, as I said, there's a lot of forgiveness built in, but there's also so many opportunities to get it right. So a Blackstone, a Colony Capital, we can talk about Colony Capital in a minute, but 
they have the ability to watch what's going on and absorb what's going on into their empires in a way. So you might end up with the next, you know, head of Blackstone being that that figure that we're talking about. But that figure is no longer a real estate person. They're part technologist, part operator, part capital allocator, right? So I think there is going to be like a triumvirate person. I don't think necessarily that the head of Open Door, they, they might be a very important figure. They might really change the game for a lot of startups. They might be the North Star for startups coming in. But sort of the people who are going to define the future of the industry are not going to be them as much as the smart incumbents who understand this and say, you know what? I have my NOIs are $300 million. I am printing money right now. I could take 10% of that and invest it in this. I could change, you know, I, I have 6 million square feet of office. Let me take 500,000 square feet of that and try something completely bananas, right? And then scale it out. So I, in this case, I don't think it's going to be a whole new guard. I think it's going to be sort of a metamorphosis of the current guard, if you will. And, one, and it's like one part of that is kind of reconceptualizing what a real estate company is. And we've talked about this yeah. where, you know, REITs, I think, were historically characterized and self-characterized as we're an amalgam of real estate assets. So yeah. we are the sum of all the individual assets that we have, we have right? Yeah. And so the sum of that, you kind of run an NAV analysis, and that is our business. But today, I think a lot of real estate companies are looking to reposition themselves more as platforms and saying the power of our incumbency is not just the fact that we have this huge footprint. It's that that footprint allows us to be creative, to disrupt ourselves, to mm -hmm. embrace technology, to do things that are not possible for mm -hmm. the owner of an individual asset. Yep. And so there's this weird kind of um, yeah. almost mental model shift that, that, that's happening where I think real estate owners want to see themselves more or should see themselves more as operating companies and as platforms than they used to mm. kind of think of themselves. You know, what's 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 uh, an element that hasn't really come up in your conversations yet that I've been thinking about more too is who are the most politically influential people in a given city? Typically developers, right? Real estate operators are typically the most politically influential. They've got capital, political capital that they've sort of developed through donations, through creating jobs, through making projects in a city. And their, their work is apparent, right? A building or a bridge is sort of is seared in, a, in the political landscape in the way that a line of code cannot be, right? So extend your opportunity that you're talking about but also give them the additional sort of boost of political capital. So if someone wants to set up, let's say a 5G network and you need certain regulatory permissions, don't you think that a real estate operator who's already developed standard buildings in a space has a pretty good shot at winning that license over like a, a Mark Zuckerberg who's coming out of nowhere, right? Now, not Zuckerberg, but the next Zuckerberg, let's say. So I think there is a political capital element that is so powerful, that is unspoken, but is there to add to all of the other advantages. Interesting. It's almost like another currency the real estate industry has yeah. as, as a natural advantage. You're right. Like real estate is a highly political business at a local level. Yeah. And that currency today is being monetized in development. But to the extent that, you know, what we think of as a real estate company morphs, those assets also kind of fall into that, that currency market, meaning the air rights, right? Above every building, mm -hmm. right? those are going to be highways for drones in the future, right? Or the subterranean space could end up being data centers. And so what we think of as like a tech mogul and a real estate mogul are today two totally different things, but they might actually converge around local political capital and influence. 
I agree with that. I, I didn't think about the, the drone uh, sort of lanes in a way, right? If you think about the, the previous example of that would be signage on buildings in Midtown, right? Signage in like at four times square can bring you in a few million dollars a year because it's such a great advertising sign. So what developers did as they do, they condominiumized. So they created a separate condo interest for the sign. So you've got a building, you've got the retail condo, and then you've got a side. So you've got three assets in one. The next iteration of that could be what you're talking about, right? If yeah. you could figure out a way to determine sort of air rights ownership, and there's there's been like some attempts to do sort of air rights banks and stuff, not very successful so far, but if you could figure out a way to do that and then dole it out to the highest sort of blade or the next drone company, uh, it's a little scary, but it's also pretty powerful from a financial perspective. Yeah, it's like the, 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 the point you just made about the power of incumbency, right? That real estate assets definitionally occupy physical space and almost definitionally they occupy that physical space at the edge of a consumer network right? Where consumers live or where they work or where they make things, right? And so when you think about the downstream uh, requirements of new technology and technological progress, it's like we're, things are going to be moving about the sky. We're going to need to have data centers very close to the edge, right? Mm -hmm. Like where consumers are actually doing their computing in their cars or on their Netflix screens. But I, I think there's also like more dimensions to it, which is could a real estate asset of building itself become a power plant? right? And actually mm. generating power vis-a-vis -vis renewable energy or by pulling power off the grid and storing it in on-site batteries. So like the conceptualization of a building, right? And that power of incumbency, which today is, is kind of conditioned almost as like location, location, location. It's like location still matters, but now there's all these third-party technologically driven monetization opportunities around energy and data and aerial access that are also going to be real estate-like in their kind of... Um, the power of incumbency there. Look at Colony Capital, right? That's a great example. I think in the last four or five years, Colony Capital has essentially sold a lot of their traditional assets. And now they're one of the largest owners of digital cell towers, 5G network sort of locations. I don't know what the technical term is. And suddenly... <laughs> They own, they own the rails, right? They own the new rails in a way, and, and they did it for cheap, right? 10 years down the line, you can imagine that any sort of digital waypoint is going to be a lot more expensive. Any, right? Just like you had your high frequency trading storage locations in New Jersey, and suddenly those prices went crazy, you're going to see this happen. So right now is a unique time between sort of the the physical world and the next iteration of the physical world that you can maybe buy some of these things pretty cheaply. And I think companies that are doing that, companies that already have a relationship with the capital markets and can sell that vision are uh, probably going to make some money for a while. Yeah, it's almost and like- more, right? Hopefully more, hopefully more than make money, but at least that. But the, the essential point of what I think we're both saying is that if you value a real estate asset as just a real estate asset, you're probably undervaluing it over the long term because the that position of incumbency of occupying only that piece of dirt could have so many other monetization vectors based on how the world progresses technologically. And I think that's a that's a real mindset shift, right? It's almost like we're now you made this comment about we went from cowboys to suits to technologists, but it might be the it starts over again and the cowboys come back and they're the ones kind of accumulating a lot of these new monetization angles for real estate. Conversely, though, the, the the importance of your incumbent assets, some people have taken that too far, right? And I'm thinking specifically about people who own stuff in like Grand Central, right? 
for a long time, they have been under this, and it's been true for the longest time, credit to them, that we are in sort of, we're in main and main. This asset cannot be replicated anywhere else. The power of this asset cannot be replicated anywhere else, right? The entire world flows through these, you know, these few square miles or whatever. I don't think that's true anymore. I think that those sort of assets that have banked purely on their physical location, and there are many of them, are in trouble. They're in big trouble. And I might get in trouble for saying this now, but that's what I believe. It's just, you cannot bet purely on being in the middle of the, you know, having a normal class A building in the middle of a great location and say, yeah, that's my meal ticket forever. And I think there are landlords who are doing that. And you saw that maybe at the beginning of the pandemic quite a bit. You're seeing that again now as people sort of re <laughs> rethink their fleeing NYC status. You're seeing these landlords saying, I was right. I was right. It's coming back and it's going to be exactly like how it is. They celebrate every restaurant reopening as they should. And I, I miss that, that vibe. But there is a level of intimacy. There is a level of intellectual connection you can have without being in that space. Or you can have it in a smaller city. You can have it in a smaller building. And I think that there's a lack of recognition of that. You started this podcast in during the pandemic, you used to probably fly around and see these people prior to that, right? The people that you connected with on the podcast, just because the connection that you have is different with them doesn't mean it's less intimate. In fact, it, there's almost a greater intimacy in this sometimes. I'm not saying I want this to be the, word, the way the world is, but there is a different element that they're not taking into account. And I think that's going to hurt them. Yeah, I think that it's kind of like we're saying two different things. One is that real estate itself is so advantageous in its ability to potentially monetize new technological themes and trends and business opportunities that arise. But on the other hand, the kind of axiom that has defined the real estate industry historically, which is that like location, 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 mm -hmm. location is ultimately what matters. It's not that location doesn't matter. It's kind of that location is a bit more amorphous. And, yep. and it's interesting when you think about that in the context of restaurants, which you just referenced, right? So, you know, in a world where food is prepared for you and comes to you, it's still important that, you know, you have the preparation of that food occurring close to where consumers are, but it doesn't necessarily need to be on Fifth Avenue anymore, right? Mm -hmm. It could be a little off. And so you have a more diffuse value to location that's more conditioned around logistics and, mm -hmm. you know, different kinds of goods need to get to consumers with a different kind of immediacy. And that's, again, a, a different mental model for the real estate industry. Where yeah, if you think of, I mean, Bonobos is a great example of that, right? They, they'll still have their store in Flatiron or wherever, and you go in, but you're only going in to get a vibe and to try it. And then the rest of the transaction might happen completely outside of that physical location. So you can never bet against New York. I think that part is true, but you can certainly bet against people who think that it's all back to normal. Right. I think you can bet against that. Let's switch gears a little bit. You painted an interesting example, you know, actually before we started talking about how the mindset generationally is different, you know, within real estate companies and within mm -hmm. real estate families. Can you unpack that a little bit and how that explains some of your healthy skepticism about <laughs> the real estate industry's ability to truly go carbon neutral? Yeah. So, so my theory, and this is, this is not scientific, this is sort of just based on observation, what I've seen is that, as you've said many times, very eloquently, climate change, tackling climate change is a collective action problem. A collective action problem by definition means you're thinking beyond yourself. It doesn't have to be altruistic, but there has to be an element of we're all in this together. Let's go now zoom in on an individual level. 
a lot of the developers, a lot of the sort of leaders of real estate companies, I'm talking about the private ones, let's say, owner operators, a lot of them are, you know, products of public schools, the Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens, your equivalents in California, Florida, wherever. They came from a world in which they still tapped into the collective, right? A lot of them may have grown up in the equivalent of Stytown or whatever, right? They grew up in a world where they still tapped into city and state resources and that allowed them to get to where they're at. So... <laughs> you might call it very residual memory, but there is something in them that understands that a city is much more than a collection of individual things, right? There is some sort of sense of that. You take it down a couple of layers, their kids or maybe their kids' kids, that realization doesn't seem to be there anymore. And the reason is they're all siloed, right? Who cares if the public school is crappy next to you? I never went to it. Who cares if the transportation isn't working? I Uber everywhere, right? Or I fly everywhere or whatever. So there is a almost a removal of them from the public fabric okay. that I think affects the way they think about these things. So when you talk about a collective action problem, you familiar with the decline of New York in the 70s and all of that, right? You're, you're, you've done quite a bit of work on that. What did the real estate industry do then? They prepaid their taxes. They prepaid their property taxes. So Lou Rudin, Burt Resnick, and a bunch of the other sort of industry leaders said, this city's in trouble and we can do something about it. They prepaid their property taxes just to kind of tie, tie the city over. Uh, guess what? New York City was in a major fiscal crisis this time around. You don't hear anything about prepaying property taxes. In fact, all you hear is sort of complaints about PPP loans and this and that. There hasn't been any sort of broad action taken from like, I'm talking financially, right? So just look at the contrast. New York City was on the brink then, New York City is on the brink now. But the difference in the way the industry reacted, I believe, is partly a function of where these people came from, what kind of lives they live. And the way that it sounds like they conceptualize the real estate industry as being interwoven into the fabric of a city, right? Yeah. The, the, act, the social fabric, the infrastructure fabric of a city. It's almost like what you're saying is the, the city has become you know, uh, uh, basically a, a, a bundle of individual real estate interests, right? We've kind of condoized the city, right? Real Which is estate. very sad, but but yeah, that's how, I, that's how I think about it. It's quite sad to see that. Any, any fan of cities, right? A lot of us aspired to live in New York and took right. all that in. And then you see it sort of change in the way it sort of characterizes itself. And that's, that's unfortunate. And what's funny is like, it has happened kind of right alongside the transition from cooperatives Condos, right? And, and the analogy is kind of one and the same, right? That, you know, if you think about a city, if you think about any real estate asset or any area of the city as being a cooperative between the owners of those assets, the real estate developers, the stores, the schools, or if you think about them as just being condoized into these individual private units, you have this kind of collective action problem that, that presents itself. And maybe we're dealing with that downstream around climate change or around technology adoption. But do you think that the, the COVID crisis itself has kind of been a lightning rod to reverse that trend in any way. And, and the reason I ask it is that I think a lot of tenants in buildings, an office building or a multifamily building, now has a heightened sensitivity or heightened awareness to the fact that their landlord has a massive impact on their public health, mm -hmm. right? And that the decision the landlord made around when to shut down buildings, how to manage air quality inside buildings, had huge public health consequences. Yep. Yep. Do you think that any part of that residually impacts the real estate industry and kind of going back to the, the ethos you were describing pre this latest generation? 
I love the concept that you have of sort of landlords as micro mayors. I, I, I would love to think that that is something that will play out. I, I do know that tenants are placing a lot more emphasis on quality of life, quality of living, quality within a building, et cetera. My, my concern is that I don't like how much pull, I guess this is a question right back at you. How much pull do you think they have in really influencing the way that these people go about their business, right? How much pull do you think an individual tenant has on sustainability, on having a clean, safe, healthy environment, right? Because I don't know if it's if it's bled over to that level yet. I will say that on the on the pandemic, it is, it has been encouraging to see landlords try different sort of deal structures. By that I mean shorter term leases is a great idea. I, I don't quite, beyond the financial rationale for it, I don't understand why a tenant would need a fixed amount of space for 15 years. Maybe you do, but I, I don't like the way the companies grow. Uh, 770 Broadway, which is a Vornado building, had Facebook as a tenant. I was speaking with their head of leasing and he said, basically my job was like leasing jujitsu, right? This company comes in, takes 20,000, 30,000 square feet and then grows sixfold in five years. Right. So the, imagine the amount of like back and forth and deals and buying out other tenants and repositioning space that landlord had to do. So I think it's been encouraging to see more of a financial arrangement between tenants and landlords. And I think understanding that without your tenant, you're a landlord of nothing, right? So understanding that relationship has been has been encouraging. I guess the rest of it will play out over time. Now, what is the most encouraging thing that you see from your vantage point around just how the real estate industry to our last conversation is embracing its responsibility in, let's say broadly, sustainability, but also its social responsibility. Like what's the most, what are some of the most inspiring stories you see from your position around the real estate industry kind of relearning, I guess, what it kind of lost in the last couple of decades? I, I think the social imperative almost like you could almost take that aside for a little bit. If the financial incentive to do it is strong enough, if the regulatory sort of stick to not do it is strong enough, if you combine those two things and the tenant demand is there, then I think you could see some stuff happening. So obviously people who are investing in technologies that make things better is good. I think that's a good thing. Some of it will work, some of it will not, but committing more money to that kind of thing, whether it's developing new technology or mass implementation of existing technology, that's probably a good thing. The last thing that happened between you know our conversation is that landlords try to work around with local law 97, right? They tried to find a way to not have to pay sort of extra for those building emissions that we've talked about. So that's always going to keep happening. I think when you can extract altruism altogether and make it make financial sense first, first and foremost, then you'll see a lot more people jump in. And I think uh, this is not a good answer to your question, but I think the encouraging thing is that real estate people uh, have a radar like no other industry. They know when it makes sense to change their tune. And when it does happen, they do it with extreme speed. They do it full heart, like sort of wholeheartedly, and they put a lot of money behind it, right? We've seen that with PropTech, for example. It's not a social imperative as much, but the same kind of thing happened. When they realize this is actually making their buildings better, this is actually making their tenants happier, and guess what? They're also making a lot of money in many cases on these investments. Blackstone, if they held their stake in VTS, probably made 25 to 30X on that $3.3 million investment. When that's happening, 
then the rest happens. I think you'd probably know more about the sort of the institutional investor side than I will, but there has been some, some movement to asking the capital markets to make more socially responsible decisions. I don't know if that's sort of woven in completely, but I know there's been some talk about it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting you drew the parallel to PropTech, right? Because, you know, PropTech wasn't a thing back in 2016. And then sometime in the intervening five years, it became a thing. Now, lots of money has gone into it. And in some, way, in some ways, you got to think of Fifth Wall as being a beneficiary of that mm. realization, right? The real estate industry's recognition that tech is important. And, you know, our products have become more diverse. Our funds have gotten larger. Or, and, you know, portfolio companies have done very well. Again, this might be the optimist for me, but I think that history is going to repeat itself with sustainability and this imperative to decarbonize. I think we're even earlier, though. Meaning I think we are back in like the equivalent in prop tech of like 2012, right? Mm -hmm. But I actually think it'll happen faster because unlike prop tech, you have these outside forces that are also pointing at the real estate industry, the regulators, capital markets, their tenants, the media, that are really pushing the real yep. estate industry to do something in a way that prop tech, no one was pushing, no one was critical of the real estate industry. No one was fining the real estate industry for not investing in prop tech. It was- There's no reputational damage to not investing in prop tech. Exactly. You might look like a, dinosaur but but at least you won't go the way of a dinosaur right like exactly. you, you're not you're not being sort of pushed out of existence in a way uh, not even in a way literally that might happen uh, so that's one thing the other uh, have you ever seen the show it's a, my you know my new favorite show so I've been raving about it have you ever seen drive to survive the Netflix no. show okay so it's about formula one and what I find remarkable about this show is that it's done in conjunction with Formula One. So they're they're part of the show very much. They film the same race from the perspective of all the drivers. And so you might see an episode in which you're focusing on Lewis Hamilton, for example, and you're rooting for Lewis Hamilton when you're with, with him. You're like cheering against everyone else and you're like, yeah, let's go Lewis. The next episode will have the same race and you're in someone else's car and you're in someone else's team and you're embedded in their psyche. You start rooting for the other guy very quickly because they've captured everything. So I think the challenge and the opportunity here for you guys or anyone else in that space is like, if you can make them change they're sort of the side they're rooting for in a way that's immersive and interesting. I think it's so powerful. I think there's so much that could be done, but but getting there is such a big fight. It's a long fight too. And it's a it's a it's a war of ideas, right? It's it's kind of out with this old idea that real estate companies are don't need to have a point of view on technology or don't need to have a point of view on sustainability. And there's some extent I think about Fifth Wall is trying to do that with funds. I I think of the media also as increasingly having a focus on this and. I'm excited, I guess. I, I think that there's, I think there's a lot to be hopeful for, but uh, I guess time will, time will tell. Yeah, I will say on, on the media front, though, there's a one of the disadvantages we have when it comes to specialty media, like real estate media is, you know, we're one of the few exceptions, I have to say, that is not there to cheer the industry on. It is not there to root for the industry. So with, with that sort of rah-rah attitude that a lot of publications have comes a lack of skepticism, comes a lack of like really diving into what this means. You talk about a sustainability initiative, right? I saw an ad campaign from something called Well, which is a building standard, right? And a bunch of other celebrities talking about, hey, you know, for a safe return to the office or safe return to the spaces we love, think about the Well standard. The Well standard has nothing to do with infectious diseases. The Well standard has nothing to do with air pathogens or anything. There's a lot of that. And you know what? Some publication might pick that up and, and go with it. So when you're in a specialty media space, there is a, 
and, and a savvy operator can use that to their advantage, which is like they can plan any kind of nonsense in the press. The disadvantage for the whole industry, though, is there's not as much inquiry. There's not as much understanding of what is real, what could actually move the needle and what is just window dressing. Right. So yeah. that is a that is something that we grapple with, that we are very mindful and very proud that we do differently. But, you know, nine out of 10 of your publications covering the space are not doing that. It's a really interesting point. And maybe it's one to, to kind of end on is like the the notion that the, the real estate industry has a lip service to a lot of these trends. Right. Uh, technology and sustainability is the two we've talked about. And it's very hard for the average consumer, the average tenant to disambiguate what's real and what's not. Right? And um, we've tried to do that a little bit in technology and prop tech and kind of calling to attention that this is a really hard and challenging sector and kind of corporates that's standing up accelerators or doing CVC is probably not the long-term solution. That is not really how the, the industry embraces change. And by that same token, you know, a real estate owner who wins some kind of self-congratulatory award and or builds a garden on a roof is not really doing anything for the environment, even though it might be optically interesting and or newsworthy. So I think what's just important is to continue the conversation around like what is real, what what should the real estate industry be doing, and how do we call attention to those real estate companies that are doing the right thing technologically, environmentally, and celebrating that and really separating that from those that that aren't. So I always love reading the real deal for exactly that reason and kind of our conversations. I appreciate that, Brendan. It's a lot of fun chatting with you. Awesome. Well, thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fly on the Wall. All of these episodes and more are available on our YouTube channel. To learn more about Fifth Wall, visit our website at www.fifthwall.com.